This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the New Books Network podcast in Asian American Studies. I'm your host, Donna Doan Anderson, and joining me in conversation today is Dr. Michael Jin, Associate Professor of Global Asian Studies and History at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Today's conversation centers Jin's book, Citizens, Immigrants, and the Stateless, The Japanese American Diaspora in the Pacific. Published in November 2021 by Stanford University Press, the book weaves together Jin's specializations in migration and diaspora studies, Asian American history, critical race and ethnic studies, and the history of the American West to examine the highly mobile transpacific diaspora of roughly 50,000 Nisei, or second-generation Japanese Americans, moving between the Japanese Empire and the American West. The book traverses these deeply intertwined histories of Asian exclusion, colonialism in Asia, and the volatile geopolitical changes regarding citizenship and migration in the Asia-Pacific during the 20th century. Jin's research builds on an already strong scholarship interrogating the impacts of World War II on Japanese Americans by providing interventions that push the spatial boundaries of Asian American studies. I'm particularly compelled by Jin's introduction to a diasporic framework to conceptualize how Japanese Americans defined and redefined their relationships with both the United States and Japan. No doubt the topics of citizens, immigrants, and the stateless make Michael Jinn a valuable member of the Diaspora Studies Cluster at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Further, he previously served as an advisor to the National Japanese American Historical Society's Teacher Education Program. In addition to this service, Jinn is also a member of the advisory group for the Illinois State Board of Education in support of implementing the Teaching Equitable Asian American Community History Act, or TEACH Act, the 2021 legislation that made Illinois the first state to require the teaching of Asian American history in public schools. His new blog, The Stuttering Professor, shares how his lifelong struggle with the speech disorder has influenced his academic career, his approaches to teaching, and his engagements in interdisciplinary dialogues on accessibility and social justice. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us in the conversation today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, so I'll just start with my first question, which is very open-ended, uh, get us situated into the topics of your book. So how did you come to write this book and on this topic more specifically? And as you have a wide variety of sources, how did you balance your interrogations from both the United States and Japan? Yeah, um, the life of this book began uh, many years ago. Um, uh, as a master's thesis, actually, uh, when I was studying at the University of California, Santa Cruz, um, I had a ridiculously naive and ambitious goal of rewriting the history of the World War II Japanese-American incarceration and uh, transforming the field uh, through my master's thesis project. Um, I had no idea what I was doing, obviously. Um, <clears throat> one thing I knew, though, was that the Japanese-American wartime experience is arguably the most widely taught and researched subject within Asian-American studies. So what I wanted to do was to look at the stories of people uh, who could offer a different perspective on this watershed in uh, 20th century U.S. history. Um, during my research, I met a group of uh, retired gardeners in West Los Angeles. Uh, they were Los Angeles natives, but they had left their hometown in the 1930s to seek better lives in Japan. Then they came back uh, to LA right before the Pacific War in 1941. 
Um, collectively, they became known as Kibei, uh, which, in, which in Japanese means those who came back to America. This is one of the terms that I use uh, throughout my book. Uh, one of the gentlemen that I met uh, took a great interest in my project. Um, he took me to his favorite West LA restaurant for chop suey and shared his story with me. Um, I'll call him Mr. K. Uh, his first name is Hiroshi. Uh, Mr. K grew up in Okinawa and returned to his hometown of LA as a young high school uh, graduate uh, right before Pearl Harbor. Um, he spoke English with a heavy Japanese accent. When the war broke out, his entire family was uprooted from home and spent the war in the incarceration camp. Uh, throughout the war, he and other Kibei, um, American citizens who spoke English with a Japanese accent, uh, had to live with the, the stigma of being too Japanese and therefore uh, potentially pro-Japan. They were under constant surveillance and their thoughts and behaviors policed. And there was even a speculation that they would be separated from the rest of the Japanese American population and placed in a segregated prison camp. But the US government drafted Mr. K into the army anyway, um, <clears throat> out of the Manzanar incarceration camp in 1944, uh, despite his perceived disloyalty and um, excessive Japanese-ness and shipped him to the Pacific Theater to serve as a linguist. And that was the only wartime context in which his Japanese upbringing and his fluency in Japanese was valued, of course, um, as an asset for the American war effort against Japan. Uh, Mr. K eventually landed on Okinawa, where he had spent his childhood before the war, um, as a member of the U.S. Occupation Force in 1945. And when he came home to Los Angeles after the war as a decorated veteran, he found himself once again a target of the lingering anti-Japanese hostility um, and the intense Cold War era anti-Asian xenophobia and the continued ostracization from his own community for still being to Japanese. So he told me all this rather casually over our chop suey dinner, but he also added that he had never really shared that part of his life with his children and grandchildren. And what I realized much later was that he and others like him had been waiting for a long time to tell their stories, um, the stories that defy the dominant historical memory of the Japanese American experience centering on a narrow conceptualization of national loyalty and Americanism. There is a well-known narrative of Japanese Americans as patriotic victims of uh, wartime racism who nevertheless proved their loyalty through their active cooperation with the US government, um, overcame racial hysteria and quietly rebuilt their community after the war and fulfilled uh, the promise of American democracy. And that is a quintessential uh, Asian American model minority thesis. It is um, emotionally satisfying and powerfully uh, appealing narrative that played an important role in the post-war Japanese American redress movement, which culminated in a truly rare achievement of compelling the US government to issue an official apology and reparations for the wartime injustice. But this kind of one-dimensional representation of Japanese Americans has pushed the complex uh, transnational experiences of US-born Japanese American migrants like Mr. K to the margins of history and silenced their voices for many decades, even after the war. Um, I found more Nisei men and women, um, like Mr. K, who were American citizens by birth, but spent their formative, formative years as migrants in Japan and Japanese colonies in Asia throughout the first half of the 20th century. And many of them came back um, to be treated like enemies. 
and they represented at least a quarter of the population of uh, the U.S.-born Japanese Americans before the war. Um, that's one in four. And what this means is that almost every Japanese American family had someone like Mr. K. My question then was, why was it that I had heard so little about them? So I decided to write in my master's thesis about what the World War II Japanese American incarceration meant from the perspectives of uh, these Kibei and how the presence of this large contingent of uh, transnational individuals within the Japanese American community had fundamentally shaped the U.S. government's policy of mass incarceration throughout the war. Um, and that master's thesis, um, although it was an utterly uh, inadequate and incomplete mess, um, became the foundation for my book project. And it's actually a chapter three of the book. Um, since that second year in graduate school, um, I've worked backwards to explore the complex uh, life experiences like those uh, of, of those like Mr. K and um, how the regime of racial oppression in the United States, uh, the anti-Asian xenophobia that had all, intimately uh, shaped all race-based legal, cultural, social, and political institutions of the Jim Crow era American West um, compelled so many young U.S.-born Japanese Americans to leave their homes and become migrants in their parents' homeland in the first place. And um, displaced them uh, throughout the Japanese empire. Um, and to answer the second part of your question, um, as my book shows, I am drawn to stories, uh, stories that are deeply personal, and yet incredibly complex, unexpected, and unpredictable, and ultimately define conventional narratives. Uh, and these stories help me think differently about the concepts that can be taken for granted, like citizenship, nationalism, identity, ethnicity, loyalty, um, etc. How do different historical circumstances and geographical political and temporal context demand um, different interpretations of these concepts beyond national narratives? Um, this is a big question um, that I was trying to grapple with by looking at a very specific group um, or, or subgroup of uh, American-born Nisei. So my approach was to focus more narrowly on how their position as Americans uh, Americans of Japanese ancestry, more specifically, shaped their distinct role in the Japanese colonial world as diasporic individuals, and at the same time, complicated their subjectivity as uh, citizens and as members of an ethnic group in the U.S. context. Uh, one of the challenges that I faced was locating and analyzing uh, sources that are sporadic and I had to work with whatever I could find. Um, so I started by looking at sources that other historians had already looked at. Immigration files, uh, wartime documents, Japanese American community papers, uh, court documents, um, and oral histories to see how these sources actually tell us different stories. What are some of the stories that were overlooked? And many archival sources that I work with um, actually tell us quite a bit about the Nisei who left the United States and lived in the Japanese Empire and about those who came back. Uh, sometimes we just need to look more um, closely. Um, here was a group of US-born Asian Americans who lived in a fundamentally multilingual and multicultural, transnational and transimperial world. Um, and as soon as I decided after the, that second year in um, graduate school that I wanted to pursue a research topic in their history, I knew that I had to work closely with Japanese language sources and I had to go to Japan. In Japan, um, again, I started by looking at places that um, other scholars had looked at. 
For example, I went to the diplomatic archives at the Japanese Ministry of Foreign Affairs to look at documents that provide critical information um, about the role of Nisei in Japan's cosmopolitan empire. So I benefited from the work of scholars in both the United States and Japan um, who have excavated and worked with these sources. Uh, but my own transnational research is also part of that collective project of developing a growing body of primary sources in both countries and in both languages that you know, help us understand the variety of uh, Japanese American life experiences in both the US and Japanese empires. Um, and I want to say that, um, and I uh, state this in my book, um, what my research delivers is far from the most definitive or comprehensive history of Nisei's transnational experiences. Um, I never set out to make that kind of bold um, claim. My strategy instead was to focus on stories and case studies that I find most compelling and use them to think differently about how um, the anti-Asian xenophobia in the American West, um, Japanese colonialism in Asia, and um, uh, volatile uh, U.S.-Japan relations that culminated in, uh, 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 in the war uh, converged in their lives. And this is a book about how they responded to and negotiated these historical changes in different ways. So some of the places that I went to and spent a lot of time to the research um, are places that have materials that focus exclusively on individual stories. For example, I went to a rather obscure um, folklore museum in a small town called Kajiki in uh, southern Kagoshima Prefecture to learn more about a Nisei who grew up there in the 1910s and 1920s uh, during the period called the Taisho era in modern Japanese history that really transformed my research in terms of understanding how even the traces of um, the mundaneness of someone's life in that obscure, small coastal village can be situated within a variety of Japanese and US social, political, and cultural contexts. And um, this is the story of David uh, uh, Akira Itami in chapter four of my book. Um, so that was my main approach to look carefully at um, whatever is available and to search for traces of the past that would allow me to weave these personal stories together and. Um, contextualize them in some meaningful ways. Yeah. And that sounds, I mean, I was so compelled when I was reading your book, I hadn't read anything quite like it before. And so I, I think one, it's so encouraging to hear that this started as a master's thesis project and that it has continued for many years since then. Um, you know, cause I, that kind of consistency, I feel like is really encouraging to hear, um, but then also this notion of telling these stories of individuals who had been waiting a really long time to see their perspectives reflected in a very, like you mentioned, uh, well-studied and, uh, you know, quite expansive scholarship that's on Japanese Americans uh, in Asian American history. So I guess the, the story about Mr. K that you've introduced us to brings us a little bit to the questions that you're asking in the first chapter. Um, and I'll take a quote from that first chapter. You say, what made the diasporic identity of many Japanese American migrants unique was that their life in Japan, their purported diasporic homeland, was an extension of their American experience. Would you be able to elaborate on how Japanese Americans went from citizens to immigrants in the years before World War II? Yeah, um, I look at the transnational displacement of Jap Japanese Americans um, as a long term consequence of the Asian exclusion movement in the early 20th century um, in the US. So this is very much an American story to me. Um, I was always interested in ways that the anti-immigrant um, sentiment that, that intimately shaped the regime of the Jim Crow era racial exclusion in the American West 
uh, directly contributed to the white nationalist attack on the institution of uh, birthright citizenship more um, broadly. There were concerted efforts in California and other Western states throughout the 1910s, 1920s, and 1930s, for instance, to uh, strip um, the citizenship rights of the U.S.-born children of Japanese immigrants. And this contributed directly to the dismal socioeconomic outlook for many Nisei in America. And many of them saw the rising Japanese empire as a place where they could pursue socioeconomic mobility and maybe fulfill um, the broken promise of American dream. So my interest lied primarily in looking at how the anti-Asian um, sentiment and various exclusionary legal measures designed to stop the influx of Asian migrants um, based on the Orientalist representation of Asians as perpetual foreigners and a danger to the socioeconomic well-being of white America did much more than exclude the immigrant, immigrant generation um, from American citizenry. And I've always thought that the most consequential impact of the anti-immigrant sentiment and the politics of xenophobia was, and I think it is still to this day, um, the threat to their U.S.-born children's future in this country. Um, so the transnational displacement of Nisei during the first half of the 20th century was one of the bizarre consequences um, of that powerful culture and politics of um, xenophobia in the United States. And my book's examination of the Nisei migrants' diasporic engagement with the U.S. and Japan starts in that context of the Jim Crow uh, American West. Um, many years ago, I read a memoir written by one of the Nisei migrants um, who was a Southern California native. Um, he went to live in Tokyo in the late 1930s and ended up staying in Japan permanently. And he wrote, uh, we were seeking better lives for ourselves. Not in America, but in Japan. I read it as a powerful statement that defied the American dream narrative, which had completely failed these young Americans of Japanese ancestry. Um, so this is a story about people who used transnational migration as a powerful way to claim their agency um, and as a way to overcome their, rightless, their uh, rightlessness in their own country. So again, that's where I started. Um, and I traced their movements and their experiences uh, across national and colonial borders of the Pacific world uh, from the early 20th century American West to the Japanese colonial frontiers, um, from small rural towns in Kyushu to the cityscapes of Tokyo, and from um, World War II incarceration camps in America uh, to the city of Hiroshima on the eve of the atomic bombing, and back to the United States again as migrants during the Cold War decades. Um, and I followed their transnational journeys in archives, and a variety of historical memories that revealed to me how these migrants drew the American West into the larger histories of nations and empires um, in the Pacific world. Because this is not simply a linear immigrant narrative of Nisei's escape from the United States to Japan. Their relocation to the Japanese empire was not the end, but only the beginning of the story. Um, once they left their homes in the American West, what they encountered was a world that was intimately shaped uh, by the exigencies of geopolitical changes and shifting uh, U.S.-Japan relations. Despite their hopeful imagination of Japan and the Japanese empire as a place that would allow them to pursue the kind of freedom and uh, social mobility that their country of birth had denied them, these migrants often found themselves mired uh, in a series of bizarre and tragic events um, at the crossroads of U.S. 
and Japanese empires, which of course culminated in a, a tragic war in 1941. Um, and although they were on the other side of the ocean, they continued to engage with the United States and their lives were inevitably and intimately tied to their families, friends, and loved ones back in the United States. Um, so what happened in the U.S. still mattered. And at the same time, their lives were forever altered by the developments in Asia and beyond, uh, from the global Great Depression to uh, Japan's imperialist war in Asia, to the si uh, Second Sino-Japanese War and the Japanese settler colonialism um, in Manchuria, and to the war with the United States. And these global historical events offered some of these young Japanese American migrants um, a lot of opportunities, but simultaneously devastated the lives of many more of them. And many of them continued to grapple with what it meant for them to live um, as American citizens of Japanese ancestry, um, pretty much wherever they went. Yeah, that makes Thank you for that clarification and all the wonderful examples. I love this notion of like rethinking movement and immigration outside of linear narratives. And so I think you, and you had also mentioned in your description a little bit about the notion of rightlessness, right? What does it mean to be Japanese American, though a citizen of the United States, but still rightless in your own country? And I think that's where chapter two really spends some time highlighting uh, some of the key interrogations around what actually rightless means. And so I'm wondering if you could maybe talk through um, how you emphasize immigration law, particularly as it shifts on both sides of the Pacific and its impacts on the transnational Nisei, um, which I know you're, you're already uh, getting at in that last uh, question, but perhaps an example of how this actually plays out um, and how Japanese Americans, despite, say, their citizenship in the United States, could become rightless citizens beyond just, say, the uh, political movements to try and strip them of their birthright citizenship. Yes. Uh, this is a part of the story of the life in Japan being an extension of their American experience because um, although they were away from the United States, they often found themselves still subject to um, racist legislation and exclusionary politics in the United States. Um, there were a number of ways in which um, the Japanese American migrants became stateless. And I use the concept of statelessness uh, both in um, um, in the legal sense, as well as in the cultural and political context. And the group that I focus on in chapter two are young Nisei women who lived in Japan and Japanese colonies uh, during the 1920s and 1930s, uh, whose experiences exposed the long-term crisis that the Japanese American migrants um, had to confront uh, as a result of the unexpected impact of the U.S. government's immigration and nationality policies during the first half of the 20th century. Um, the case study that I use uh, in that chapter is about a California native Nisei woman named um, Toshiko Inaba, who grew up in her uncle's house in Kumamoto, Prefect uh, Kumamoto Prefecture in the 1920s. Um, and in, she decided to leave Japan and return to her hometown near Sacramento in 1928 um, at the age of 20, only to be denied entry by the U.S. immigration authorities at Angel Island. Um, they declared that she was no longer a U.S. citizen and instead a person of a race ineligible to citizenship and not admissible to U.S. soil. And she was deported to Japan uh, 16 months later. What happened was that during the entry interviews, um, the immigration officials learned that she had married a Japanese citizen against her will while she had lived in Japan. And she had that marriage annulled um, uh, in the eyes of Japanese family law. But 
U.S. immigration officials invoked two federal laws uh, that the that um, Congress had passed while she was in Japan to strip her U.S. citizenship and reject her entry application and banish her um, from her country of birth. The first law they enforced um, was the Cable Act of 1922, and this was a law um, that repealed the Expatriation Act of 1907, which had forced any American woman marrying a foreign national to forfeit her U.S. citizenship and assume the citizenship of her um, husband. The Cable Act of 1922 purported to protect an American woman's birthright citizenship regardless of her husband's national origin. But the Cable Act made a critical exception to this uh, women's right to independent citizenship by continuing to strip U.S. citizenship from American women like uh, Toshiko Inaba, who married um, the so-called aliens ineligible for citizenship, namely um, Asian men. And this glaring, glaring loophole in the Cable Act allowed the U.S. Bureau of Immigration to declare that um, Inaba had um, essentially given up her uh, American citizenship by virtue of her uh, marriage marriage to a, a Japanese citizen. Um, so that that's how um, she she lost her U.S. citizenship. The second law that the uh, U.S. immigration uh, officials invoked was the Immigration Act of 1924, which um, effectively made her an illegal alien because uh, this law barred admission of the so-called um, aliens ineligible for uh, citizenship or um, immigrants from Asia. Um, after revoking her U.S. citizenship, the officials at Angel Island reclassified her legal status um, as a stateless individual, then as as um, an illegal immigrant from uh, Japan. So here was an example of the consequential impact of of the long history of Asian exclusion um, on Japanese Americans' birthright citizenship. Uh, what this case demonstrates is that it was the Japanese American women living abroad who became the most vulnerable victims of exclusionary U.S. policies. And so even after these Nisei citizens relocated to the Japanese empire to escape anti-Japanese sentiment, the U.S. regime of racial exclusion demonstrated power to strip their birthright citizenship because of their life choices uh, while they were away from home. But the most compelling aspect of the story to me is that this young woman fought her way to the U.S. Um, federal court to assert her independent birthright citizenship and her right to rejoin her family back in California and how she had to negotiate both Japanese and U.S. legal and cultural institutions to articulate and reclaim her identity as an American citizen. Um, she filed a series of appeals while she was um, imprisoned on Angel Island for 16 months, which actually made her the uh, longest detainee from Japan in the history of the Angel Island immigration station. Um, and she eventually, eventually lost her case and uh, she was deported to Japan. Um, it would take her 35 years until 1965 to fi finally return to the United States legally as a Japanese immigrant. And she lived um, the rest of her life in Sacramento um, as a naturalized citizen of the United States until she died in 1981. There is a long history of the fierce nativist campaign to strip U.S.-born Asian Americans of their birthright citizenship um, throughout the 19th century and early 20th century. There were a number of well-known cases like 
United States versus Wong Kim Ark in 1898. But what the Toshi Koyinaba case tells us is that um, that exclusionary movement um, had finally come to fruition in the 1920s when racist legislation stripped the birthright citizenship of Nisei migrants and more specifically Nisei women uh, who had gone to Japan. Um, another gendered dimension to the vulnerability of Nisei migrants uh, birthright citizenship was that there were thousands of Japanese American men who were uh, dual citizens and served in the Japanese armed forces uh, during the Pacific War. And uh, many of them were conscripted into the Japanese military and they were forced to bear arms uh, against their country of birth, often against their will. But as a result of their service to the Japanese emperor, they automatically lost their U.S. citizenship uh, based on the National, uh, Nationality Act of 1940. And um, it would take many of them pains to recover their uh, uh, American citizenship after the war because the onus was on them to prove that they were compelled to serve in the Japanese military um, against their will. So both in terms of legal and cultural terms, um, there many Japanese Americans, uh, because of their actions and decisions and because of the forces beyond their own power, uh, became stateless um, in a variety of contexts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, that's, I think, both thinking about immigration in the gendered uh, aspect, but also in this notion of uh, putting, you know, Nisei in the position where they have to negotiate and prove to the United States or Japan, right, various in whatever context um, of their situations demonstrates, like you said, this really fascinating uh, interrogation and understanding of both the cultural and political context of uh, both spaces that they belong to. And I think when we get to the wartime years, as you're alluding to at the end of uh, your statement, which is you know, how do Nisei, who are serving in the uh, in the Japanese military during the wartime years, uh, kind of negotiate and explain their participation is a really fascinating angle. Um, so I guess the next few questions for me are going to focus on the wartime years, right? Uh, when the United States and Japan are at war and how this is directly impacting uh, this transnational Nisei class that you're talking about. And I really, really enjoyed chapters three and four. Like I found them to be, and to, to also find out that chapter three was the master's project. I mean, wow, blowing my mind truly. Um, so to think about chapters three and four together, which is really analyzing the role of the Kibei during World War II um, and you know how their developmental years abroad are both used against them, but then also used to kind of propel them uh, to other social statuses, right? And so I would like maybe for uh, listeners who are maybe unfamiliar with what the Kibe uh, class is, would you be able to explain how the Kibe in your construction or in your kind of uh, interrogations of the book are a politically and culturally constructed category uh, to deflect from say Nisei loyalty and the Nisei loyalty problem? Yeah. Um, uh, do, um, during the war, uh, many of the Kibei were stigmatized as those who returned from Japan with a cultural baggage of um, being too Japanese, as um, I uh, briefly talked about when I uh, when I introduced uh, uh, Mr. K's story. Uh, many of them spoke English with a Japanese accent uh, because they had been educated in Japan and spent many years in that country, uh, as well as in Japanese colonies in Asia. 
And after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in December 1941, the U.S. government treated these kibe as a potentially dangerous um, and pro-Japan element um, within the Japanese-American community. Um, and there are uh, reports prepared by um, the military intelligence uh, officers, for example, who um, you know um, uh, even suggested that uh, Kibe should be treated um, just like um, the Nazi sympathizers, for example, um, uh, in the United States, and 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 they should be separated from the Japanese American community. Um, so there, there was even a um, a suggestion to separate the Kibe, and more specifically, the male Kibe uh, bachelors, which is a term used by the U.S. government's uh, War Relocation Authority, um, the agency in charge of managing the uh, ten incarceration camps from the rest of the Japanese American population, um, and that was based on the perception um, that the Kibe, by virtue of their um, education and their um, upbringing and their extended stay in Japan were essentially Japanese in their cultural and uh, political disposition. And therefore, they must be perpetually loyal to the Japanese emperor. And these Kibe were also ostracized by their own community during the war. Uh, many among the Japanese American community leaders who actively cooperated with the U.S. government's incarceration policy um, identified Kibe as a group that could potentially tarnish the image of the rest of the Japanese American community as loyal Americans uh, because of the sweeping representation of the Kibe as um, essentially Japanese uh, in spite of their American citizenship by birth. And this compelled many Japanese Americans to reject anything that could be perceived as Japanese. And um, sever their ties to Japan. And this intense rejection of Japan resulted in the active suppression of Kibe's voices throughout the war years um, and for many decades after the war. Um, so there was enormous social and political pressure um, on the Japanese American community as a whole. Um, and the war uh, engendered an almost complete uh, polarization uh, between things Japanese and, and and things American. But of course, as Mr. K's case tells us, the exigencies of war made Kibe's linguistic abilities and their knowledge of Japanese culture also valuable um, to the U.S. government when they served as uh, translators and interpreters in the U.S. intelligence warfare in the Pacific theater. Um, outside that specific context of their, their martial duty, um, the Kibe would remain a category that served as the antithesis to loyal and um, assimilated and Americanized Nisei. Yeah, and speaking of translators, I think that's where um, David Akira Itami's story comes in, which is something you mentioned uh, in the opening statement. And I'm hoping we could potentially revisit him because as you analyze in chapter four about his life and his roles, and then particularly how he's, I mean, how his experience was then uh, co-opted and perhaps like romanticized um, in Japan through the best-selling author or best-selling novel, which I don't think I can pronounce the name very uh, correctly, but I will attempt. So Futatsu no Shokoku. And also this uh, television series that was created based off of this novel, right? And so as we, as we have talked about, right, the Kibe as a politically and culturally constructed category was kind of used not only to determine loyalty, but also um, to kind of create this notion of allegiance, right? How does David Akira Itami's life and then his romanticized counterpart in the novel, Kenji Amo, 
demonstrate how Kibe were also employed in similar ways in Japan or how they were used to propel certain narratives uh, on the other side of the Pacific. Yeah, um, but the Itami story is something that I find very compelling and also very troubling um, because not, on, not only does it open a window into the complex trans-Pacific lives of Japanese-American migrants, but it also reveals the power of historical memories in shaping the post-war debates about loyalty, um, allegiance, and national identity in both countries as you mentioned. So I'll talk a bit about both of those aspects of the story. Um, the David Akira Itami's life, I think, offers a social history of Nisei migrants' diasporic world. Um, he was born in, in Oakland, California, um, and he grew up in southern Kagoshima Prefecture in Japan in the 1910s and 1920s. And it was a period in which Japan had undergone um, unprecedented uh, political liberalism and uh, social unrest. And at the same time, Japan was um, expanding as a colonial empire. Um, and he returned to the United States in the, in the early 1930s as a young man who had developed a unique perspective on Japan and the Japanese empire. Um, and he would go through his life as a Kibe in the 1930s and 1940s. Um, he was a young uh, factory worker at one point, um, and he became a quite a, a well-known journalist uh, in the Japanese American community, and he um, um, also became a community leader. Um, he was once accused by uh, Japanese American leftists for writing columns that looked sympathetic to Japanese imperialism in Asia. But when the war broke out, he transformed into a model American patriot. Uh, he volunteered to serve um, as an army language instructor out of Manzanar. He joined the U.S. Army's military intelligence service, and he translated some 4,000 Japanese wartime documents. Um, and he won the Legion of Merit Award for his uh, service. Um, then he went on to join the U.S. occupation force um, in post-war Japan and served as a chief language monitor uh, at the Tokyo war crimes trials. He then committed suicide um, while he was stationed in Tokyo. Um, so his story shows how both modern Japanese um, and U.S. history, as, as, as well as global history, uh, actively shaped um, the diasporic lives of uh, Nisei migrants. But it also complicates the notions about Japanese American loyalty and their their national allegiance. Um, um, David Tommy's tragic life became a model for Japanese writer um, Yamasaki Toiko's novel um, Sokoku, which which means two homelands, um, and it was published in nineteen eighty two, and it became serialized as a popular. Um, NHK a TV drama in 1983 called uh, Moi, which can be translated as Mountains and Rivers Are Burning. Um, and Yamasaki's depiction of the main character, um, Kenji Amo, was modeled after uh, David Itami, is that the Kibe soldier's true allegiance was to his uh, diasporic home, which is Japan. Right? and where he was raised as someone steeped in the traditional Japanese virtue of loyalty. Um, and it was because of his um, uh, Japanese upbringing and um, uh, that, that he was raised as a, um, a loyal Japanese person that he was able to serve honorably um, in the U.S. Army. And although he served in the U.S. Army, uh, Yamasaki's interpretation was that he suffered from deep inner conflict because his heart had really belonged to Japan. And that suffering led him to commit suicide. Um, now, this novel and the TV series uh, engendered 
a fierce backlash um, in the Japanese American community in the U.S., especially when um, the uh, NHK or uh, Japan Broadcasting Company announced that it would um, show the TV series uh, in the U.S. market in 1984. Um, the the backlash came especially um, from the Japanese American community leaders who criticized uh, Yamasaki and uh, uh, NHK for the representation of a Nisei man as someone whose loyalty straddled um, the two nations. And this was in the midst of uh, the Japanese American redress movement. Um, and the Nisei community leaders were actively promoting the image of Japanese Americans as loyal Americans to uh, win public support um, for redress, redress legislation. Now, what is missing in this debate, of course, is David Itami's own voice. Um, he didn't live long enough to have a voice um, in the controversy created by a novel based on his life. Um, the truth is that no one knows why he took his own life. Um, but the fact that his life, despite its enormous complexity and his death, um, had to be represented in popular culture and political debates in ways that reproduce um, the reductive notions about one's loyalty. I think it really demonstrates the power of nation-centered narratives in both um, Japan and the United States. And that's why I find um, this particular case study um, very troubling and also um, powerful. Yeah, I love the kind of bringing it back to the reductive notions of national narratives and questions around uh, belonging and citizenship as being like, this is what's going to direct the ways that we interpret these histories um, and these experiences, because as we know with Tommy's life, it's much more complicated than that. Um, so I guess maybe to kind of finish up a consideration of these wartime years, I really liked how you explained that uh the wartime histories between two empires in Japan and the United States shared a lot about how Japanese American migrants, quote, negotiated wartime loyalties and citizenship outside of U.S.-centered context, end quote. And so I guess this gets us back to this notion of uh, blood rights citizenship or just sanguinis that uh, Yamasaki is talking about in this narrative, right, which is what is compelling Itami's life is this pull to the diasporic homeland and this loyalty to the diasporic homeland. And so I guess this goes all the way back to what you mentioned about the Nisei soldiers who are serving in uh, the Japanese military. And then also all of these other contexts in which, uh, how do we deal with Nisei who are one on the side of Japan or quote on the side of the United States? Um, how do their roles during the war impact their U.S. citizenship, and then, of course, the years of American occupation that follow the end of the war. How are they navigating that? How are they negotiating their status then? Yeah, the, the war certainly altered um, the lives of many Nisei who were um, stranded in Japan. Um, despite their U.S. citizenship by birth, um, the Japanese government uh, did not treat them as enemy aliens the way that uh, Japanese Americans in the United States were treated during the war. So they, they, they did not go through something like mass um, imprisonment. Nevertheless, the Nisei in Japan faced mounting pressure to demonstrate their loyalty to Japan and serve Japanese war efforts um, against the allied powers. And Nisei residents in Japan responded in a variety of ways. Uh, some men and women served um, in the Japanese intelligence warfare. And as I explained earlier, um, many Nisei men served in the Japanese military. Um, so the Japanese government did claim their loyalty for sure. Um, and 
Nisei's citizenship and national allegiance became really fluid and um, fragile in that context. For many Nisei in Japan, as well as in the United States, being loyal to a country during wartime had much to do with uh, survival. And they often found themselves in a position where they had little room to really negotiate um, their national allegiance. Um, for many among those Nisei men and women who survived the war in Japan, their knowledge of the Japanese language and customs made them assets to uh, American occupation after the war. So um, that was another context that made the the fluidity and uh, fragility of their uh, um, um, citizenship um, very pronounced. Many of them served in various civil staff sections of the U.S. occupation government um, under the Supreme Commander um, of the Allied Forces, uh, General uh, uh, MacArthur. Um, they also served as a liaison working for uh, various Allied forces um, occupying different regions of Japan. And these employees of the U.S. Occupation Force included those Nisei men who had served in the Japanese military and uh, lost their American citizenship as a result uh, because of their service to the Japanese emperor. Um, and it was, in fact, their experiences as veterans of the Japanese armed forces that made them even more qualified to do the work that required the knowledge of Japanese society um, and the nuances of, of its culture, um, bureaucracy, ideological institutions, etc. So the exigencies of U.S. militarism and Cold War geopolitics really blur the boundaries of uh, national loyalty for the Nisei. Um, and, and once again, it, it, it proved to be the only context um, where their um, Japanese, Japanese-ness um, uh, was valued. So I guess that brings us to the final chapter of the book, which takes us out of the wartime years and into uh, a much more contemporary moment when discussing the role of Japanese-American atomic bomb survivors. Um, so this final chapter and its sobering analysis tells us a little bit about the lessons of the Japanese-American atomic bomb survivors and how that inspires us to think differently about how we treat, examine, and engage violence across multiple spaces. Could you tell us maybe a little bit more about, um, one, that narrative and what it looked like, and then perhaps what lessons we can pull and cull from that experience in moving forward? I think the Japanese-American atomic bomb survivors' struggles for redress and historical recognition remind us that for many victims of military violence, like the nuclear holocaust in uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, it's not just a single atrocity that defines their survival. Uh, there were thousands of U.S. born Nisei in Hiroshima in 1945 because that's, that uh, city and uh, Hiroshima uh, prefecture um, happened to be the place that had sent the largest number of Japanese migrants to the U.S. So many young Nisei migrants were um, in Hiroshima because it was their parents' hometown. The fact that the United States dropped an atom bomb on Hiroshima in spite of the large presence of these American citizens is not something that is often discussed or debated. Although the atomic bombing, I think, remains one of the very popular historical topics that have engendered um, debates on myriad moral and political implications. It's really incredible that the enormous scholarship in this history and popular culture have had little room for the inclusion of these American civilians uh, who were trapped in Hiroshima and became victimized 
by the atomic bomb that was supposed to liberate the world from the Japanese empire. And after that, these American survivors of the nuclear Holocaust became excluded from the dominant liberation narrative of the war. The U.S. government has yet to acknowledge the presence of these uh, U.S.-born Japanese Americans um, who were victimized by the bomb. So in that sense, they became essentially stateless um, in the post-World uh, War II regime of reparations and compensatory justice. Uh, many of these atomic bomb survivors returned to the United States, and they led a movement to advocate for themselves and other victims of, of, of the nuclear violence. And they also led legislative campaigns in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, which culminated in the introduction of uh, congressional bills that would require the U.S. government to provide medical care and compensations uh, to the American victims of the atomic bombing. Now, these bills didn't really have um, the, the chance of being passed, and they, they served primarily as um, a symbolic call um, for, for the historical recognition of these forgotten uh, American victims of the atomic bombing. And I, I would also highly um, recommend um, Naoko Wake's book, um, American Hibakusha, which um, is a beautiful um, and very important book that uh, document the experiences of these people. So here again, I use the concept of statelessness um, in the sense that many among the Japanese American migrants um, who went to Japan uh, as a way to escape from racial exclusion and uh, xenophobia and um, survived the American military violence. Um, they, they have continued to struggle to find a place in the narrative and historical memory of the Japanese American experience, um, in, in spite of the fact that they they you know I, I think their their stories um, uh, offer a very um, uh, sort of compelling um, aspect of the post-war um, Japanese American uh, struggle for redress. All right, so that kind of takes us to the final question of today's conversation, uh, which is really getting people to see a little bit more about where your interest lies now that this book has been released. So would you be willing to share uh, what projects you're working on and or what's inspiring you presently? Sure, I'll be happy to. Um, the projects that I am working on uh, build on my book's uh, cross-disciplinary and um, transnational approach uh, to the uh, studies on human migration and uh, racial formation that draw from the perspectives of migrants across uh, multiple national borders. My current research documents the experiences of Korean survivors of the nuclear holocaust in Hiroshima and Nagasaki um, that um, revealed the legacies of Japanese colonialism and U.S. militarism and the post-colonial politics that we address um, in the Pacific world. Um, and, and part of um, this research was published in Emirates Journal last year um, in a special issue on Cold War Reformation. Uh, in that article, I explore the historical erasures of Korean and U.S.-born Nisei survivors of the atomic bombing. And my next book project will examine uh, the 20th century transnational circuits of change uh, across West Asia, East Asia, and North America that converged uh, in the lives of Iranian and uh, Korean migrants during the Cold War decades. Um, and as a part of that project, I'm currently focusing on the experiences of migrants from Iran uh, whose journey to America was routed through their sojourn in South Korea um, since the Islamic Revolution in 1979. 
So like my first book, what is uh, driving these projects is my interest in pushing the conceptual uh, linguistic and spatial boundaries of ethnic studies and area studies um, across nations, regions, and empires uh, manifested um, in the historically grounded experiences of people in global diasporas. That sounds fascinating. And I'm so excited to read that work and to see how it fits into not only our understandings of world history or global histories, but Asian American studies as well. Um, so I want to say thank you so much for your time and for your wonderful contributions that you put forth in Citizens, Immigrants, and the Stateless. I hope that many people who are listening pick up this book, uh, read it, and enjoy all that it has to offer because I really do think it has uh, enormous impact on the fields uh, that you're speaking to. So thank you, Michael, for joining me today. Thank you so much. <laughs>